we, uh, we're continuing back in the book of Acts uh, this, this week. Um, so if you're watching along at home, I invite you to go ahead and take a seat and get comfortable. And uh, if you have your Bible, would you please pull it out and open it up and turn with me? We're in Acts chapter 15. It may seem like forever and a day ago in which we were in uh, the book of Acts, and it, it kind of was. But uh, we're back in Acts this, this morning, and we're going to be continuing our way through the study of Acts. And this morning we come to Acts chapter 15, which is a seminal event in the life of the early church. It is the event in which the church got together and held what has, been, what has come to be known as the Jerusalem Conference, or the Jerusalem Council. And a number of representatives from Antioch and Jerusalem, all the apostles, the elders, together with the church in Jerusalem, gathered to, to address this question of whether or not it was necessary to be circumcised and uh, to observe the, the moral law, the ritualistic law, not the moral law, let me rephrase that, the ritualistic law, the law of Moses as prescribed in, in the Old Testament, if that was necessary uh, in order to be saved in addition to Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Before we jump in and read the text this morning, let me just kind of tell you uh, where we're going today and next week and the week after that. We're going to spend probably three weeks here on um, the Jerusalem Council. Today we're looking at the reality that salvation is by grace. Grace triumphs. And we're learning this morning that we need to trust and love God and each other by grace and not by any other means. Next week, we're going to move our way a little bit further in the Jerusalem Council, and we're going to understand that nobody has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, and that living spiritual, walking with the Holy Spirit, can only happen fully within the context of the local church. And we're going to consider that next week. And all of this is going to lead us to two weeks from now, uh, putting all of these pieces together and understanding that um, the church as a spiritual body is beholden to no one save Jesus, her Lord. And we're going to really unpack that and understand that because of that truth, um, all systems of hierarchy are not biblical. And what I mean by that is if you have a church that uh, relies upon its marching orders from some higher council, from some higher ecclesiastical authority, be it a bishop or a, some sort of a council of cardinals or even the pope, and there are many other such systems. This isn't just the Roman Catholic Church. This pertains to Anglicans and Lutherans and, and, and those types of denominations. It, it, all of that uh, cuts against the grain of what the scriptures are clearly guiding us towards here in Acts chapter 15. And so we're going to look at that in two weeks' time. But this morning, we're looking at the first 11 verses. And so I hope you found your way to Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. We're just going to be considering that this morning. And so I invite you to read along with me. Verse 1, some men came down from Judea. Now, uh, they actually, on a map, just to help you understand this, they actually traveled north from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay. Um, why does it say they came down if they were actually going north? Well, they didn't have cardinal points on a compass similar to what we have today, and that is a reference to elevation. So Jerusalem was higher in terms of elevation than Antioch. So when it says some men came down, it means they, they came down the mountain, as it were, from Jerusalem. So it says some men came down from Judea, and they went to Antioch, of course, and, and it says they were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had, a little bit of an understatement here, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, and I want you to notice that, when there was a question regarding doctrine, the church congregation as a whole appointed ministers to go and to investigate and to inquire on their behalf. All of this action is undertaken by the congregation. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But, now, so they say, here's what's happening. God is saving the Gentiles. And and so it says here in verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together in order to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, a heated argument ensues as a result of this. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them. He's talking about the Gentiles. He bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And he concludes, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's how he concludes that passage. So let's just pause for a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning by illuminating the text before us and opening our minds and our hearts to understand what it is that God is trying to say to us uh, so that we can apply this text to our lives. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, we just say again, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for the insight that it offers us in terms of how we are to live as a church. No one man is to be heavy-handed or authoritarian or lording it over the church. We have one Lord, and it's you. You're our king. Lord, you're, you're our savior. You're our best friend. And so we just thank you for this encounter here in Acts chapter 15, this Jerusalem conference and this debate and this discussion that unfolded, and all of the application, all of the practical truths that flow out of that. This morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see by your word, through the illuminating of the Holy Spirit, the reality that we, Lord, are saved by grace. Your salvation is a gift. It comes to us freely from your hand, not because of any merit of our own and certainly not because of any religious performance or any religiosity we might engage in. Father, I pray you just drive that truth home into our hearts this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In Robert Louis uh, Stevenson's work, literary work, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll comes to realize that he is 
uh, as it says in, in the work, an incongruous compound of good and evil. Dr. Jekyll's bad nature, his, his tendency towards laziness and apathy and, and all of that, keeps him from doing all of the good things that he normally wants to do. Uh, so he, he wants to do good for mankind, and, and he's always pushing himself to do these sorts of things, but he, he can't because there are these other elements in his nature which hold him back from it. So he decides he's going to develop a, a solution to the problem. He comes up with a potion. And the idea is that this potion is going to separate out his two natures, his evil nature, his lazy side, uh, that, that side that's apathetic and doesn't really care. That side is going to come out at night, and his good side, the side that is virtuous, that wants to always be doing good, that side will be the active side that is, that is working by day. So he takes this potion, and uh, th- that's the idea, that he'll be freed from all of these, uh, these vices, as it were, and he'll be able to pursue only virtuous achievement. But when he takes this potion, he discovers, uh, Louis Stevenson writes, quote, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life. He's talking about the evil nature that comes out at, at night. I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original sin. Notice that, the way he words that. And the thought in that moment braced me and delighted me like wine. Edward hides every act and every thought centered on self. Louis Stevenson names this dark side of Dr. Jekyll Edward Hyde because it's a reference not only to the hideousness of his character, Hyde, but it's also a double entendre referencing the fact that he is hidden. He hides, as it were. He thinks only of his own desires. He doesn't care in the slightest who he hurts. At one point in time, he even murders an individual in order to get what it is that he wants. So he is pure carnal, pure flesh, living in the flesh with no regard to anyone else, and only his only desire is to delight and satisfy himself. That's why he's named Hyde. Once Jekyll realizes that he has this incredible capacity for evil, he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to clamp down on that evil nature, and he's not going to give into it, and he's not going to gratify himself anymore. He's not going to take the potion. He resolves not to take the potion. He doesn't want to let that evil nature out. Uh, And in order to atone for the crimes that he committed while he was evil, he is going to relentlessly pursue doing good. He uses this terminology, he, he's going to atone for it, and he's also going to suppress it. He's going to atone for what his evil nature has done, and he's going to suppress his evil nature. And so the way that Louis Stevenson writes this character of Dr. Jekyll, he's using intentionally, he's using Christian terminologies, talking about this idea of atonement, and even though he doesn't use that word expressly, he's talking about this idea of sanctification. And what we have here in Dr. Jekyll is we have this drive, essentially, to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, to grit his teeth and clench his fists, and essentially to try harder and to do better. Well, this goes on for a number of years, and uh, Dr. Jekyll does indeed give himself to doing good, good works for, uh, uh, for humanity, and he gives himself to all sorts of charitable projects. And uh, one day, he's sitting on a bench in Regent Park, thinking about all the good that he has been doing and how much of a better man he has become, 
And as he's considering the individuals in the park who are strolling by, and uh, he's considering them and comparing himself to them, he recognizes that he is a better man. And Louis Stevenson writes, quote, regarding the character of, of uh, Dr. Jekyll, quote, as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, you can just sort of hear the, the sarcasm, the criticism dripping from his voice. As I compared my active goodwill with the cruel laziness of their neglect, at that very moment of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down, and behold, I was once more Edward Hyde. Dr. Jekyll, in that moment, becomes Hyde without ever taking the potion. This is a deadly turn of events. Jekyll knows that he is a sinner. And so he tries to desperately cover his sin, of course, with great piles of good deeds. And yet, at the end of it all, it only actually feeds that selfish, self-centered attitude in his heart. It only feeds his wickedness. It didn't lead him to a humble love of his fellow man. It actually led him to a smug, self-contented, self-centered, self-righteous pride. And suddenly, look, now he has become Hyde in that moment. In a sense, you could say that Jekyll got religion. He got religion. And religion killed him by reducing him to hide forever. That's what we're encountering here in Acts chapter 15. It's the debate over what is necessary to salvation. And there are two ideas that are being presented, neither of which are presented to us in the story of Jekyll and Hyde. The idea of grace, which is totally unique and totally unlike any other religion that you find anywhere else in this world. There's that idea, and then there is this idea of religion. Now, I need to be careful on how I define and quantify my terms. Of course, it can be said that Christianity, in the broad sense, is a religion in terms of how that word is often used to denote a system of belief or a system of thought or faith. And in that sense, Christianity absolutely is a religion. However, it's not a religion in the way that there are other religions in this world. If you actually go out and you compare all of the other religions in the world, be it Hinduism, be it Buddhism, be it Sikhism, be it Judaism, be it any number of other different religions, um, Islam, you will find that in all of these religions, there are actual things you have to do, practices you have to engage in and engage in religiously in order to be saved. Jesus Christ is completely different than that. He's completely different than that. Christianity is a religion, but salvation in Christianity comes as a gift and not as a means of self-endeavor or moralistic undertaking. That is not how we find salvation. No one can earn their way to God. Christ gives it to us as a gift. That's what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 15. So look with me. The first five verses set the context. Obviously, some guys end up in Antioch. They're teaching that you have to be circumcised. They're talking about the Old 
Testament context of the Mosaic law. They're talking about observing all of the ritualistic commands. They're talking about all of the ceremonial responsibilities. They're talking about all the rites and all of the different things that are involved there. And all of this centers on the symbol or the mark of the old covenant people, the old Testament group of people, that mark being circumcision. All the law is kind of wrapped up in this outward symbol that uh, this particular individual belongs to the covenant community, to Israel. He is therefore Jewish and he's a part of the people of God. And so they say, if you don't do that, if you don't observe all of this that is encapsulated and symbolized by this mark of circumcision, if you don't observe all of the Old Testament rituals and all of that sort of thing, then they say you can't be saved. So if you're following along carefully, what they're essentially teaching is you have to believe in Jesus, which is true, it is correct, but salvation is a matter of Jesus plus effort plus doing something, and as a result of that, then you can be saved. So you have to add to what it is that Christ is doing for you. And the text tells us that there was a heated discussion around that idea. It says in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, notice those words, dissension and debate. They argued. They argued against it. After they had no small amount of heated argument. It says that they were appointed, along with others, a few of the others, to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they go. And as they're going, they share the good news with other churches along the way that God is saving the Gentiles. And those churches are rejoicing. And they get to Jerusalem And, of course, everybody in Jerusalem is happy to see them. The church in Jerusalem is excited that they're there. Hey, guys, good to see you. Come on in. What's up? Let me tell you, the Gentiles are getting saved. Pharisee party rises up. Uh, Sorry, I beg your pardon. Can I hear that one more time? God is saving the Gentiles. Great. And, of course, you circumcised them once they believed in put their faith in Christ, right? Nope. Didn't do that. (laughs) How come? Why not? Well, why should we? Well, because they're not fully saved unless they get circumcised and unless they do all that the Old Testament law commands them to do. Salvation is a matter of observing the law, doing what the law says, and then also believing in Jesus. In effect, what they're saying is that salvation is a matter of Jekyll self-effort to kill off that Edward Hyde that resides in all of us. Salvation is a matter of religion. And the response to that is going to be, no, it's not. I want to draw your attention to this. This is very, very important. Look at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, some, notice this, some believers, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, you must be circumcised. It is necessary to be circumcised in order and to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. This is essentially what they're saying. The Bible says that they are believers, And as believers, they are advocating 
heresy. The message that they're putting forward will not lead the unconverted, unsaved, unbelieving Gentile or Jew to salvation. They're advocating a gospel that is not good news at all, and yet the scriptures declare that they are believers, meaning though they're confused, though they don't fully understand the nature of salvation, at some point in time they had placed their faith solely and exclusively in Jesus Christ. They had hoped in the Lord, and the Lord had saved them, but now they've gotten confused about what that looks like. Their understanding of the gospel has been muddied. The scriptures identify them as believers, but believers who were influenced as a result of their affiliation with the party of the Pharisees, which has now led them to advocating for heresy which means that this whole debate, this whole argument is absolutely necessary. We live in a day and age in which if there are any kind of heated discussions that take place within the church, people think that that is a bad thing. People think that that should not happen, that there shouldn't be any debate or any kind of discussion, that we all just need to smile and go along and get along. And when you encounter these individuals, usually the example that is put forward is, I have been to one too many business meetings where we argued over the color of the carpet. Now, I understand that. Don't get me wrong. There are absolutely foolish things that we could waste our time arguing over. But we've swung the pendulum too far. We're basically saying, yes, the church has spent too much of its time arguing over things that are of not any critical importance, and now, as a result, if we want to share, if we want to show unity to the world, we want to show everybody that we are actually united in Christ, well, there can't be any hint of discussion or debate or dissension whatsoever. That is disproven by this text. This idea kind of creeps up that if we disagree, if we don't go along with what the leadership says, or if we're not fully on board with what different individuals in our church are teaching, that somehow we're not good Christians. Whether or not we're Christian depends upon Christ. Being good or bad Christians does not mean that having a discussion over crucial, weighty matters such as what constitutes the gospel, what constitutes correct doctrine, should be completely prohibited or denied to the church. In fact, what this passage shows us is that the debate surrounding correct doctrine and good theology and the nature of the gospel itself must be held within the local church. It's not restricted exclusively to a group of individuals sitting in their ivory tower, academicians, theologians. It is to be engaged in by everyone who's been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And yes, we fully acknowledge even those individuals who are saved, who are going to heaven, can be so badly confused they are advocating for heresy. Nevertheless, for their sake, as well as for the testimony of the church to the watching world, we're called to engage in these kinds of discussions. You know, I, watch, uh, I watched a documentary uh, a while back on Netflix on CrossFit. I don't know if any of you are familiar with CrossFit. Uh, anyone who's ever done CrossFit will tell you that it's less like a workout routine and more like a cult. It's a religious observance of sorts. Um, people who do CrossFit are so gung-ho, so passionate for their 
athleticism and their being physically fit sort of approach to life. I mean, I, I know of people who have done CrossFit. No joke. This is no exaggeration. They uh, would even go to weekly seminars where she and I would go home and hang out with our family and eat dinner and not care too much about the balance of calories to protein and whatever else in our meal. These guys go to seminars where they actually get lessons on how to make your own zero-fat mayonnaise. <laughs> That's how consumed they are by being healthy when it comes to CrossFit. It's a bit of a cult. But I was watching this documentary on CrossFit, being the fittest man on earth. That's like the big thing. They have these games, these Olympic, they're like Olympic games. They call them the CrossFit games. And people from all over the world compete to be the fittest man or the fittest woman on earth at these particular games. And I was watching the documentary of the very first ever CrossFit games that were held at this, uh, this it was basically a farm in, in California. It was basically run out of the back of this guy's barn. And uh, the fellow's name is David, I think David Kettleman. And Dave, they call him Dave, and, and he was so passionate about actually measuring and, and timing everybody and, and doing it and being empirical and taking proper measurements, making sure that at the end of it all, whoever came out number one with the fastest times, lifting the heaviest weight and all this kind of stuff, that they were truly the fittest on earth. And in the documentary, there's this one exercise where one of the athletes was cheating on the exercise and not doing it properly. And the referee, the guy that's there monitoring him and, and supposedly making sure that he's doing it properly, kind of was slacking off on his job and wasn't paying attention and was letting him get away with these reps, these repetitions of this exercise that weren't true repetitions, that weren't true to the exercise. And Dave Kettleman, from his stand, 200 feet away, screams to the top of his lungs, you, you, and he's like gesturing, you, those last five reps don't count. He notices that he's cheating. He says, those five reps don't count. And in the documentary, it cuts away to Dave calling all of his referees together, and he's chewing them out, and he's saying, guys, you guys are failing all of these athletes. You have to make sure that you're timing them exactly, that you're making sure they're doing the repetition exactly right. He says, everyone here is counting on us in order to know who the fittest man on earth is. And he makes this great line. He says, you, you are the keepers of the truth. So for me, watching at home, I'm just like, oh, man, like these guys, it is a cult. It's a cult. Um, but one of the things we can take away from that is that what Dave Kentleman holds up as his religion, being fit and healthy and athletic, and, and his approach to measuring it and, and making sure that we have accurate times and all of this, his statement, you're the keepers of the truth, that statement really applies to the church. The church is the keeper of the truth. These debates, these discussions that we get in from time to time should not be looked at as unhealthy just because we're having them. Don't misunderstand me. We can engage in debate in such a way that it is unhealthy. But the object, the essence of the debate, the object towards which we are striving does not necessarily mean that the debate is wrong or unhealthy to have. We are arguing and working together as a congregation towards the truth because we have been charged with God above to be the guardians, the keepers, as it were, of the truth. Now, God guards it himself. He guards it in his word. But it is up to us 
to know the word and to speak that truth to the watching world. So this debate is not ancillary. It's not unnecessary. It is critical. So when we enter into this discussion, let us understand that the church has been entrusted to weigh in on these matters, to understand these questions, and to come to agreement by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures and to declare and proclaim that agreement to the world. Paul, Paul and Barnum is coming down from Antioch, coming down from Antioch, cardinal point on the map, uh, going up to Jerusalem, elevation. This is necessary, what they are doing. And it's necessary for us as well. Notice now the question. It is necessary, the Pharisees say, for them to keep the law of Moses. So, verse 6, the apostles and the elders had gathered together to consider this matter. And after, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter's response, he hears all the debate. There's been a lot of discussion. It's gone on for a long time. And it says, after there had been much debate, Peter stands up. So this is sort of a description of the fact that Peter gets passionate. They're obviously sitting down, kind of having this back and forth, give and take. And at some point, Peter's like, I've had it. And the scripture says he gets up out of his chair and he begins to speak. And what he says is, listen, God chose me that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear and they would be saved. Now what's Peter saying there? He's going to go on, he's going to make a couple of other points, but at the outset what he is saying, what he's reminding every person in that room is that he is, number one, an apostle, and as he describes himself in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's an apostle, an elder, a leader within the church, a pastor, and he's reminding them of how that came to be. Peter, if you'll recall, is not Gentile. He's Jewish. He's Jewish, and he observed all of the rules and all the regulations of the Mosaic law. He's been circumcised. He's done all of these things. And when it comes to him walking with the Lord, there was no one who was more passionate, no one who was more eager, more zealous. Peter was the one that was a keener for Christ and Jewish to boot. So he's walking with the Lord. He fulfills all of the rules and the regulations of the Mosaic law. And if you'll recall, knowing the life of the apostle Peter, none of that counted for anything. Peter is the one that says to Jesus, Jesus, you're not going to be crucified. So this is never going to happen to you. And Peter's res Jesus' response to Peter was, get behind me, Satan. Strong rebuke. I mean, Jesus was one to call names. He called the Pharisees vipers and serpents and whitewashed tombs and all of this kind of thing. He never called any of the Pharisees Satan. The rebuke that he gives to Peter is the strongest rebuke recorded anywhere in the Gospels. He says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter is trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross, dying for the sins of the world. Peter is standing in the way of God's plan of salvation. Jesus had just gotten done saying to Peter, congratulations, Peter, you know I'm the Christ. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... Peter is saying 
to all those individuals gathered there in the Jerusalem council, you know that God chose me. You know that. Everybody there is familiar with the story. Everybody recalls that this is the man who denied Jesus three times on the night of his betrayal, the night before he was to be crucified, when he had just passionately sworn his willingness to go to the death as long as he was following Jesus. They knew everything about this guy. And at the end of the day, what Peter's saying is, you know, from start to finish, my relationship with Jesus Christ, all of it, comes about as a result of his grace. Who chose Peter to follow Jesus? Jesus did. And when did that choice happen? Was it before Peter was faithful or after Peter was faithless? It comes before all of it. All along, Peter fails and Peter succeeds. All along, Peter gets down and Jesus helps Peter up. Before any of that happens, Jesus chooses Peter and he welcomes Peter into a relationship with himself, knowing all along the ups and the downs, the successes and the horrible, horrible failures. And at the end of it all, when he meets Peter on the beach after having his best friend and the lead apostle deny him three times, he says to him, Peter, do you love me? And of course, at this point, Peter is humble. He says, you know I love you, Lord. You know, like, you, you know it. You know, and he's not going to be bold. He's not making those same kinds of declarations. And Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. Now, the upshot, the outcome of it all, Peter is saying, I was given grace. I failed time and again. You know that there was nothing special about me. There was nothing miraculous about me. I wasn't some amazing, perfect, flawless hero of the faith. His story is well published, and it is pockmarked from beginning to end, full of failures. And he's saying, you guys know that amongst all of us gathered here, Jesus chose me. Meaning, it was not off of any merit of Peter. It was based on the grace of Christ. What do I mean when I say grace? A couple of people have defined it. I'll read to you a few of those definitions. B.B. Warfield says, Grace is the free, sovereign favor of the Lord to the ill-deserving. John Stott makes the statement, Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Jerry Bridges says that grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. Jal says that grace is the love of God towards a person who simply does not deserve it. Grace is God's favor in your life that is given to you completely and totally apart from anything you have ever done. You don't deserve it. You never could earn it. You never could deserve it. God doesn't give it to you on the basis of anything you've ever done. God gives you the gift of his son for free, though it comes at tremendous cost to himself. Not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. Grace is a gift. That's what grace is. And what Peter is saying there at the Jerusalem Council, he is saying, listen, you know, 
that God chose me as an act of grace from among all of you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and be saved. He's referencing the events that had just taken place a few chapters prior in Acts chapter 10. You'll recall Peter is called by the Holy Spirit to go to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his whole household, and he preaches the gospel to him, to the the house of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, verse 36, don't flip there, just listen. It says, as for the word that just as Peter, this is Peter preaching the gospel to Cornelius at his house. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And he goes on to unpack that to help Cornelius to understand. And he concludes that thought in verse 43. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Whoever believes in Jesus can be forgiven. Everyone, he says everyone, can be forgiven through him who can receive forgiveness through his name. That is through knowing who Jesus is, understanding who he is, knowing his identity. There is no other name, Peter says previously in the the book of Acts, there is no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved. It's the name of Jesus. It's the person of Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the holy one of Israel, who is fully God and fully man. He comes and he chooses Peter by grace, not because Peter, with all his observance of the Mosaic law, deserved it, but simply because of his grace. He saves Peter and then he chooses Peter with all of his faults and all of his failures and all of his shortcomings to preach grace to Cornelius that through the mouth of Peter, Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter observes the Mosaic covenant. Cornelius is a Gentile. He observes none of the Mosaic covenant. He's not circumcised. He's not a Jew by birth. Salvation comes to them both equally. Our time has just about gotten away from us this morning. What I want to leave you with is this thought. We are saved not because of our righteousness, not because we've done anything to earn the favor of God. We have no righteousness. And when it comes to the goodness and the glory of God, there is nothing we could ever do that would ever manipulate him or compel him to act on our behalf. And yet in the gospel, in Christ, we see that the Lord acts in our behalf because he loves us, because of who he is. There's this old movie from the 50s. It's called The Hanging Tree. You probably haven't seen it. It's got this old actor in it, Gary Cooper. In this particular movie, The Hanging Tree, Gary Cooper plays the part of this doctor. It's a Western. He's out in the Wild West. And there's a a fellow who gets into a bad scrape, and he gets shot. And he's a bit of a criminal. Gary Cooper, as the doctor, treats him, pulls the bullet out, 
and this fellow survives. He was going to die, but he survives. And after he recuperates, he says to Cooper, who is playing the part of the doctor, how could I ever repay you? How could I ever pay you back for the gift of my life? And Cooper replies, I need a medical assistant. You could serve as my medical assistant, helping me treat other patients. And the, the criminal says to him, okay, I, I guess I can do that. How long would you need me for to be your assistant? And he says, for the rest of your life. He says, what? For the rest of my life? He says, I, I tell you what, you are going to serve and help heal people for the rest of your life because that is exactly the amount of time that you would have been dead if I didn't save you. People hear this message of salvation by grace and they think, great, all I need to know is that God loves me and that he gives me the gift of salvation and it doesn't matter what I do. But a person who is truly saved would never talk like that because the exchange the gift of grace and the receiving of grace requires that you as a dead man now brought to life no longer live for yourself, but as Paul writes in the book of Galatians, you live for him who for your sake died. Christ has healed you by grace. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Our time is out this morning. Otherwise, I'd go on to explain more of it to you. We'll touch on this more next week. But don't think that you're your own. You were purchased at a price. And you now belong to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word to us, Lord. We say thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that it comes to us as an act of grace. God, we pray that you would just drive from our hearts and our minds any notion that we somehow are good people who have put you in our debt and have acted in such a way that you now, Lord, you have to do good for us. We know, Father, from the word that nothing could be further from the truth. You do good for your people because of who you are. You do good for your people because of your great love. You do good for your people because you are a God of grace. We pray, Father, that we would remember that there is nothing we could ever do to earn our position with you. There is no religion, no moral standing that we could ever attain to that could ever, ever earn your blessing or merit your mercy in our life. It comes to us for free by grace. And we praise you and we say thank you for that, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name.